Hello, my friends. Mandy here with a quick invitation for you to join the Patreon for our show. We've recently switched up some of the benefits, including a new monthly workbook to go along with all the incredible content you're getting on the show. It's a quote yourself through grief kind of a vibe. And for only $10 a month, it is a wholly worthy and affordable way to invest in your own healing process without the commitment of a full coaching relationship. Learn more at patreon.com slash Mandy Capehart. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Thank you as always for being here. Now let's get into the good stuff. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 103, titled Relational Grief and Healing with Cortland Coffee. Recognizing grief in its less common presentations can be really challenging, and often it's easy to overlook. My guest this week is here to share a bit about how he has navigated the shifting landscape of connections and relationships in his life, which have ultimately brought up a lot of grief. Cortland Coffey is a former youth pastor raised in fundamentalist evangelical ideology, and now he is reevaluating the way he shows up in relationship to himself and to others. This is grief work. And although it may not seem so obvious, it deserves the same intention and compassion we would offer to ourselves or others in the wake of a death. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's Mandy. I am here today with my friend, Cortland Coffey. Cortland is a former youth pastor, and he is the current host of the wonderful show, The Thereafter Podcast. And they talk about everything in life in the aftermath of leaving a world of faith. And so we found each other on Twitter and I'm so very grateful you get to know him today. Welcome Cortland. Yeah, Mandy, thank you so much. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and just hang out and uh, get into whatever we get into. So really, (laughs) really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited too, because, um, you know, as we were talking about off air and there's so many different directions that this can go because you are not a grief professional. You're not necessarily someone that sits around and thinks about loss or who has. I'm like the opposite of that. Yeah. I'm like, yep. <laughs> an Enneagram seven. Yep. Uh, you got to twist my arm to make me have bad feelings. Oh, sweet friends. That's where we get to decide. And you'll appreciate this as a reframing behavior for the sevens, right? There's no such thing about bad feelings here. We're going to break. Speaking of breaking binaries, since that's one of your favorite things to do, we'll just break that binary of good and bad. There's no such thing when it comes to those emotions. So love that. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk with you about today is just speaking of your Enneagram sevenness is the vast way that you show up in the world. You have such a invitational presence about you. I remember when we first met in person, your goal was like saying yes to and spending as much time as possible with as many people as possible. And your, your little energizer bunny battery seemed to keep going the whole entire time, which for me, even as an external, like people person, I tend to burn out very fast at that level of intentionality. And so I'm curious with your history of what you've done career wise, but also just socially, like bring us up to speed on how you hold space for yourself to exist when you are constantly on that path of drawing people to you, because there's a lot of healing and kindness and compassion in that willingness to bring people in and and to spend time with them, but you have to still exist in the midst of that. So how do you, how do you like decide that? Yes, I'm going to still draw those people in. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't have like a good answer. I'm definitely still very much figuring that out uh, and have been in a period of, of transition, which was really largely kicked off by COVID and lockdown um, because that was the first point in time. Up until that point, I was still largely using social interaction as distraction. Um, It is something that I genuinely enjoy. I love people. Uh, I really love getting to know people, meeting people, spending time with people, and being out and being social, uh, obviously with lockdown, it was like, oh, we can't do that. Uh, it drove me to areas of the internet like Clubhouse, uh, where I met so many wonderful people, uh, and Discord and various online communities where I could I could 
experience that social interaction, but it definitely changed the way in which I was able to keep myself distracted with social interaction. And so that was kind of the turning point. And I've been on kind of a journey since then trying to figure out what time with myself or time just being focused more on myself and not externally focused uh, is like and feels like and can, you know, how that can benefit me. But I'm definitely still very far from having that figured out. Mm. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't, I don't have like a, oh yeah, this is how I figured that out um, because I'm still, I would say very much in the early stages yeah. of figuring that out. Well, I think that that's really relatable and important to recognize too, because I mean, if we want to put this in the framework of grief, right? When we recognize, okay, something isn't quite working, let's pivot quickly, like start of COVID, all of my social needs are not being met. I'm going to pivot as quickly and as painlessly as possible to survive. You are now on the other side of that, recognizing, okay, what I did was fine. What, what I have learned, who I've become, how I've shown up has served me really well. And it's completely reasonable that I've gone through all of these websites and all of these different experiences to try and build a sense of community around me. That is really relatable, I think. And I think you are also among the majority of people who now a few years into that process are, are doing something similarly and saying, well, wait a minute, this wasn't sustainable. It was meaningful and helpful at the front end, but it's not sustainable to continue to pour myself out into these relationships, looking for something when you said it really well, when you were like, Oh, it's all coming from the external. It really is. So, so then that just begs the question is as someone who is now practicing some reflection and internal look, how does that feel? How are you? I mean, how much, how much on a scale of one to 10, do you absolutely hate having to be introspective and slow down and disconnect from everyone to do the work. <laughs> uh, that number is changing. Um, definitely used to be a 10. Uh, I think we're probably somewhere in the middle now, maybe more like a five. I think that I'm, I'm leaning in and learning to enjoy less socially stimulated time and time with myself, uh, less, scheduled time, uh, downtime, uh, and not keeping my calendar just packed full all the time. I think there's an element for me of setting precedent with people relationally that I have had to adjust and realize that, for instance, like I don't like being out late. <laughs> like I used to be uh, a big out at the bar, kind of a drunk, <laughs> but just like being out and like a lot of relationships that I formed from closing down bars and being out late and, and being a night person. And like I said, COVID really changed a lot of that for me. And so I found myself in these situations now where I'm like, I, I want to be in bed at eight o'clock on a Friday night. Uh, I had a friend text me at like nine 30 the other night and was like, come out to this like local bar that, you know, we go to. And I was like, there's no way that I'm putting pants on. Like, it's <laughs> like, this is no, there's no way that's going to happen. Um, and I think to some extent it, it's been an adjustment of like, there are some, people who who needed or wanted me to be that person and yeah. I can't be that person in some contexts uh and that that's okay right and just like accepting that uh maybe part of not wanting to you know sit at home and read and do a puzzle or whatever I do these days more often than not wasn't because I didn't want to be doing that or didn't enjoy it but because I felt that I had set an expectation that I would I would be there. And there there also is just a ton of payoff from that, right? Like 
we think about like the way in which we get engage online in social media spaces, like there is relational connection that you get when you live on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you are replying quickly and interacting with content that people are putting on social media, you are able to connect in a real time way that you're not if you just like schedule out 10 minutes to get on Twitter at the end of the night, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're just not going to have the same experience. And so it's like trying to balance out for me in all of these areas, like, okay, like there is something that I'm going to miss out if on, if I'm not engaging in this way, but is that worthwhile? Like, is, is it worth it to miss out on that for what I could benefit from maybe doing something a different way? And I, and like I said, I'm still, I go back and forth. There are days I live on Twitter um, and there are days that, that I don't. Uh, and I think realizing that there really is real loss there, there is something that you lose by, you know, there are conversations that happen at the bar at one in the morning that can be really wonderful and you yeah. can have some great experiences. And on the other side of that, there are things that happen at 8am on a Saturday morning that you never get to experience if you're at the bar at 1am on Friday night, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really important distinction to recognize. And, and going back to your seven, like sevens are really good at recognizing the positives very quickly um, because they're looking for them. Right. But, but it's a skill as well for people who are grieving to move themselves out of focusing on what they're losing and looking instead at what they're gaining and being able to exchange that demand from others, that external expectation that you're meeting for someone else's benefit. Yes, you gain from it as well, but really the benefit is not as great as it would be if you were meeting your own internal expectation. I love that. What do you think has changed as you've started to disappoint people and fail to meet their expectations? I think, I think like what, one thing that I've realized is that a lot of the expectations are self-imposed people are really chill about when you say like, Hey, I need space or, Hey, I'm not, uh, able to, you know, my social battery is low or whatever. I've been doing that a lot recently as I've been in like a period of kind of burnout and, you know, things like even the podcast, right? Like we're on this weird mid season break, uh, where we've pretty much wrapped up what we wanted to do in season three. And we don't want to fully take a break because Megan and I still love hanging out. And I do want to, you know, record episodes, sometimes recording an episode is fun, uh, and really fulfilling. And so we're kind of, sometimes we're recording some weeks we're taking off. We're kind of letting ourselves do whatever like we can do. Uh, and there's always this pressure that like, you have to create, you need to tweet, you need to post, you need to, you know, in, in general, there is this expectation you set when you're putting content out or you're running discord servers or various different things where you're like, I, I need to be present. I need to be creating. I need to, to be doing this stuff. Um, I think in a lot of ways, there's like an internal, like people are going to forget about me. Maybe it kind of connects to some abandonment stuff that I have uh, as like, you know, well, if, I, if I'm not present in front of people, they're going to forget about me. And I don't, I don't find that to be super true. I, I don't think that people actually are as upset when I can't meet some expectation that I've kind of put on myself mm -hmm. in in a relational exchange i also think that a lot of it ties into how i exist in the world and kind of projecting that onto other people i'm very much a type of person that if you're not in front of me i forget about you i which sounds awful uh but i that's how my brain works it's like if if i don't I use the penned text 
thing in my iMessage. Uh, I use it in Twitter DMs. I'm regularly penning people up into that space because I'm like, if I don't see your face, <laughs> then I'm going to forget to talk to you. And it could be months before I remember, oh, I really like that person. I should send them a message or whatever. Um, and I, and I realize that not everyone is, is that way. And sometimes I project that on to other people. Like I need to stay, like my face needs to stay in front of people or else they're going to, they're going to forget about me. Um, but that's not, that's not the reality. I think what you're describing is a lot of really beautiful embodiment work about the truth of who you are and where you show up in the world and what you need to maintain a healthy presence for yourself over intending a healthy presence for others. And that is a, that's a really, really important skill that a lot of times we don't see when someone is actively grieving. The first thing they do is some version of isolate and take care of myself only or externalize and take care of others. I was just talking to someone the other day who was expressing that they were grieving a loss, uh, very fresh within a couple of weeks. And their only response was how they observed everyone they knew that was also grieving that loss and what they were going through. They had nothing to say about their own, uh, process. And what I found interesting about that was just the same thing. Like we have a huge responsibility to learn who we are and what we really need but we can't necessarily do that. If we're going into those average spaces where we just show up, we feel affirmed and solidified. We feel seen no matter if it's really a helpful feeling like a really positive experience, or if it's just kind of like a, okay, well that was not great, but it was better than being alone kind of an experience. Um, but it sounds like pulling back from those incredibly active, really engaged, always present person that you are being able to soften that it sounds like it's bringing you into a really like newly introspective space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think realizing that there, there's a lot of aspects of like my personality and who, who I am and how I interact with people that often gets like characterized really kind of positively um, or selflessly but in many cases, like through further introspection, it is like very self-serving to the extent of like, I'm engaging oftentimes relationally for the dopamine hit, right? Yeah. Like I, I do care about people um, and I love, I love people, but I am oftentimes using these as you know like the way we use social media we're using these as dopamine delivery systems mm -hmm. um and so whether it's the you know the news feed or the group chat or uh dating apps or whatever it might be it is like oh i need a hit of whatever that is and so i'm going to get on and swipe on the dating app or i'm going to get on and have a glass of wine and reply to 40 Instagram stories because that will create a, you know, a dopamine hit for me to, to have that engagement. And so I think I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, how do I balance those two realities mm -hmm. and not moralize that behavior? Uh, because to some extent, like doing something that brings you happiness is not a bad thing. We don't have to go, my, you know, fundamentalist evangelical mind automatically goes like, I'm doing this for pleasure. It it can't be good. <laughs> uh, but like realizing that it's like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm doing this for, for pleasure. Uh, and I'm creating patterns to some extent with this behavior that I want to at least just be aware of, right? I want to have some like presence in that to go like, okay how am I doing this in a way that's going to be sustainable for me and also is going to be a situation where, where I don't create a dependency from somebody else, you know, and then let them down, which is mm -hmm. obviously a huge fear. Yeah. I think the way that you show up and communicate too about what you're doing and what you're experiencing is obviously a skill. 
it's something you have to develop. No one is just naturally a really good communicator to be able to say, Hey, I'm not going to, I don't want to let you down. So I need you to have healthy expectations of what you're going to get from me in this relationship. But it can also be certainly exhausting for you to then think, Oh, I have to offer that to every single person I meet so that I'm not disappointing them. When grief uh, conversations, but even just transition life transitions, activate grief within people that groundwork that they have, like you were saying about your fundamentalist evangelical background, right? A lot of people who listen to the show share that kind of a background as well. And that will be the thing that comes to the forefront to say, well, what about this principle or a scripture will come to mind and they're really frozen and not sure how to process and not sure what to do next because their belief system is also a source of grief or it's also in flux. And so how have you, I know it's been quite some time that you've been working through that perspective, but how have you seen that show up for you and how do you support yourself as you recognize, Hmm, that's not really a present day Cortland perspective. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, um, as well as in like our spaces and some other places online, but I think one of the biggest things that I've had to keep coming back to in my, you know, therapy journey and in kind of like my relationship journey, uh, specifically with like life partners and my spouse and that sort of thing is that there was so much of a mindset of permanence mm. that was a big part of the ideology that I grew up in, right? You have this narrative around being saved, around being a new creation, around getting engaged or getting married or going into ministry or all these various points along the story that are framed in this, this name change type of moment, right? It's like the whole kind of narrative around the fundamental biblical ideology that I grew up in was one of linear permanence that, you know, was very uh, clearly defined and, and would be forever, right? These things, eternal realities were a big part of the way in which I saw the world. And so I think that realizing that no things aren't linear things aren't permanent things aren't eternal that they're much more circular they're much more seasonal and rhythmic and obviously there's a ton of that in scripture right about rhythm and about balance and life especially in jewish scripture uh, we see that really consistently through a lot of the imagery and a lot of the narrative. Uh, but the way in which obviously I was, I was taught the, you know, Western Protestant Christian fundamentalist bootstrap type of <laughs> Christianity, uh, it, it set me up to not be able to go, oh, things can change and change back and change again, whether it's relationship dynamics or whether it's my personal rhythms for life or whether it's my sexuality or my gender or uh, the way in which my parasocial relationships are existing all of these things can be evolving and not evolving in a linear escalation, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can, uh, I've had relationships that have seen seasons of 
it's very easy for me to intellectualize and theorize on these types of things. And I love to think about that, uh, the way in which we construct uh, our perspective on these systems and structures and habits and rhythms and ideologies and theories, et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think one of the things that has been difficult for me in the work of reckoning with change, which I think correlates well with grief, uh, is the feeling or emotional side. And primarily, I think one of the main reasons for that is how feelings and emotions were weaponized and used so effectively for control and for manipulation and abuse. So even for me, like one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about is uh, anger. You know, people will often be like, you know, people on the internet, especially can be angry. Uh, and a lot of times people will, again, kind of like, uh, uh, point out something about me in like a, a complimentary lens, like compliment, like you just don't get angry. You're, you're just not up, you know, upset. Like, mm -hmm. and I'm, and I'm not, I, but I'm mostly not because I'm some sort of like saint, mm -hmm. <laughs> but more so that anger has been used so much to motivate me in a past life to do so many terrible things mm -hmm. uh and manipulated me and and etc that that i've shut off lots of those parts right mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. it's it's not that i am like oh i'm not going to get angry uh you know because i'm just not angry i just like literally have shut off that that portion of myself in order to be able to effectively uh, protect myself. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so as I talk about a lot of these things that I'm experiencing, obviously I have thought through them, but I do and still very much struggle to feel them or embody them, as you say, in terms of the actual like emotional experience. Yeah. It's a good question just because it, it's something that I think most people will say because you're right. Anger is easily dismissed as a negative emotion, as a dangerous emotion, as a, uh, the gateway into violence. And that's true to a degree. If you are left untethered and you are given all of the reasons in the world to grow in hatred then yeah, anger can be a really dangerous place to exist. But the reality is it's a secondary emotion that protects us from feeling the more tender emotions and the ways that we really truly have need that's going unmet. So a lot of the times with, with what you're talking about, just to like define it a little more clearly, thoughts can lead to emotions and feelings are more physical manifestations. And a lot of times people will conflate emotion and feeling together. They're really, there's some similarities, but they're different. So if you think about like tired, I can feel tired in my body, but really it doesn't quite describe the emotion we're feeling. Maybe we're feeling really emotionally just empty. Right. Uh, so that's kind of where you start with it, but the idea of learning to embody your emotions and recognize how to move through them in a way that's not fearful in a way that's not avoiding them because they're dangerous or we've been told that they're unsafe is a couple of different, I mean, there's quite a few practices, but one that I really like is by getting really still and quiet and doing a body scan and bringing your thoughts to the tip of your toes and waiting and allowing yourself to ask your body the question, what do you need me to know? And you scan slowly up your body. And instead of thinking of a response, you wait. And I know that can be a really confusing concept for people. Like, well, what do you mean? Don't think of a response, wait for a response. Until you have experienced it, it can be confusing. The moment you experience a response from your body, your 
your mind like softens in, in, in totality, your whole brain goes, Oh my God, that's what that feels like. That's what that experience is because it becomes something that you didn't quite think of that you realize I couldn't have thought of that myself. Have you ever read your own writing and you go back and you're like, who said that? That's brilliant. Wait a minute. I said that that was me. It's yeah, a moment all the, like all that. The time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember like the majority of things that I say are right. So yeah, all the time. Yeah, totally. That was me. I'm so wisdomous. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think part of it is that part of it is that embodiment practice of truly deciding I'm going to connect in the present moment to my body when the body has been unsafe, when it has been harmed, when it has been framed as a dangerous experience or a dangerous part of our human life. That's a really terrifying prospect. So I definitely don't recommend somatic embodiment practice for anyone that hasn't, that has experienced unsafeness in their body to do it alone, always with a professional, be with someone that you can trust, that you can drop your guard, that you know you are safe with. Um, because it can bring up a lot of really scary physical memories. That's what trauma does. It, you know, we relive the thing we're going through. Um, and then there's some other things you can do uh, again with professionals. I don't, I don't really think people therapizing themselves is a smart way to go about it. But, um, another thing that I have found people to be very positively responding to is internal family systems ther uh, therapy, which is just that idea that all of your parts belong. All of the younger parts of you were doing what you said, hiding, trying to survive, doing the best that they could with what they had at the time. And that had to be enough. But now that we are older and we are in places of security, we can have conversations again, asking ourselves to pause instead of thinking of a response and just saying like, okay, little self, like, what have you got for me? What did I miss? How can I create safety for you so that you're not fighting to protect me or yourself anymore? You can relax, know that I've got you and that you can focus on other things, other opportunities for wellness in our life, in our, in our sense of the whole. Does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's definitely something that I am just beginning to, you know, obviously in my personal therapy journey and in the way I've been navigating, you know, my community, something I'm just, I'm just beginning to, to really think about and work on. Um, so yeah, it's helpful for sure. I'm curious how you would take the idea of this rhythm and bringing connection to people with the vastness of your social network. Like you have so many people that you would consider very close to you, but it's not necessarily sustainable. I mean, especially to the high degree that you want to offer to every person um, for more than like three or four people. So how do you as someone who is so loving and is so connected, how do you navigate knowing these relationships are going to go into rhythms that maybe dip when I'm really not expecting it or really not interested in it dipping? How do you support that relationship and yourself through that? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is I have no idea. <laughs> uh, the the longer answer, which which involves like maybe like my theories uh, or a little bit in terms of what I have, I've began to experience is that, uh, I think it, I think it has to do with, for me being able to communicate mm -hmm. what my intention, desire, mm -hmm. expectation, et cetera, is, in social interactions and and also realize that if i don't communicate those things mm -hmm. and that other party doesn't communicate those things that i need to not fill in those gaps with something so being very intentional to say if I need clarity about what the expectation or 
what someone else's bandwidth, interest, et cetera, might be, then I need to ask. And if I am feeling a need, desire, and expectation, I need to be able to say that and communicate that to uh, that person or even largely to that platform or network uh, that I'm a part of. Polyamory has been super helpful uh, for me in 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 that language to talk about connection and enmeshment mm-hmm. um, that I think I didn't really have accessible to me in my pre-polyamory existence uh, and relationship anarchy um, and kind of the theory around relationship anarchy has been really helpful uh, for me too. I think I said this at the meetup in Portland when we were discussing, I think non-monogamy maybe came up for a moment. We were talking and I had said how if somebody says like, hey, like, you know, you're talking to me like we're dating, I would be like, yeah, like kind of we are. Like anyone in relationship to me is some form of relationship that mm-hmm. sure. we have either talked about or we haven't talked about. Maybe somebody I I went on a date with somebody not too long ago and and they were talking about their their understanding of this and they said, you know, me and a person across the world who don't know each other are in relationship. Like just the nature of our relationship is that we don't know each other and we don't talk, right? But there that is a state of relationship. Yes, it is. Uh and so thinking about all of these intersecting relationships as valid points of connection to define mm-hmm. uh, rather than this idea that like, oh, I have these three relationships that I've well defined. Maybe it's a spouse and a best friend and uh, a best work friend or whatever that many people might have these more defined relationships and then all their other, the other soccer moms or the other parents at the school or the people on Instagram or the people in the discord server they're a part of or fellow people, you know, in, you know, a dance troupe that they, you know, hang out with on, you know, every other weekend or whatever it might be. All of those other relationships don't get definition. Mm -hmm. And it's almost weird to talk about. It's like, it's, it, feels uncomfortable at first to start going like, Hey, what is your, you know, what are your boundaries? What are your expectations? What are your desires in this point of connection that we have? Um, but trying to normalize that, uh, to whatever extent I can, right. There are some times where relationships are just very casual and that's okay. Um, but I find that for me, I find myself in positions of, more intimacy and deeper connection with people than other people tend to. It's not uncommon for me to meet someone and within a couple hours of talking, having them telling me things that they're like, I've never really told anyone this. And right. they're opening up to me in these ways and and creating, I don't know what it is <laughs> about me that, that, finds myself in those situations, mm-hmm. but I, I do find myself in that situation a lot. So I'm trying to be more aware of that and go like, okay, what is this experience like for them? And how can I communicate what I'm experiencing and ask them more directly what they're experiencing in this moment to avoid hurt? Because I, I think that's the main thing that I want to avoid is this sense of of hurt and loss and pain that I saw so many people go through when they lost faith communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I've been navigating fo- post-faith spaces, especially, I really want to be cognizant of what dynamics might be at play. Yeah. I think that goes back to just earlier when I said, just pointed out what great space you hold for people to be people, to really 
be honest and just to show up exactly as they are and that you have very few expectations on who they are. The fear of emotional enmeshment, I think that you mentioned with that perspective comes from a complete lack of recognition of how vast humanity is and how it works. And certainly I can relate to that out of, and that's a huge gift that you have. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that the correlation between enmeshment and closeness isn't always, it doesn't correlate always, right? right? Like there are people I have heavy enmeshment with that I don't have deep intimacy with. Sure. Right. Coworkers, yeah. for instance, right? There are people that I have high levels of intimacy with that I have lower levels or almost no level of enmeshment with. Uh, and so I think that there is so much about relational scripts that we socially depend on to kind mm -hmm. of fill in the gaps, um, but unexamined tend to, you know, put us in situations where we're not really having the best experience in a relationship that we could be having yeah. because we're depending on this kind of unwritten script uh, to inform us about the relationship dynamic. And, and again, I think, I think that unlearning that and realizing like, Oh, okay. I can speak up. I can ask questions. I can uh, define things in relational dynamics and also i don't have to be entirely responsible for how other people are going to use their subconscious scripts to relate to our dynamic or or whatever dynamics happening i can be as sensitive as i can Right. Uh, I had a conversation with a friend the other day who had gotten into a situation. They're a very flirtatious person. They're a very uh, touchy feely person. And there was, and they're femme. And there was a person who was like, well, you know, upset because they were like, you've led me on. And I thought you had different interests than you had. And I was like, did that person ever ask? Oh no, they never asked. Did they, did they ever state their intent? No, they never said. It was all unspoken. And in this particular situation, I was like, societally, we put so much expectation on femme presenting people when it comes to how we assign responsibility for ambiguous yeah. scripts in relationship dynamics, right? You you don't hear that as often with mask presenting people or men where it's like, oh, he really, you know, led me on. Uh, no, that whole narrative is really based in a lot of gender, very gendered uh, understanding of relationships. And so I just bring that up because, because I think her when i was talking to her letting her off the hook and going like hey like listen yeah maybe it would save you some headache to be more clear but also it's not your responsibility to define your intention with every person you interact with because this is how you interact with people yeah. uh, and and it's an unrealistic expectation to put on you to say oh no you're responsible for how this man responded Perceives, to yeah. uh yeah and perceived this situation and so yeah anyway i just think that that examining those those scripts and those dynamics is not only helpful for creating more clear and more life-giving dynamics and connections and relationships for us but it also helps us unlearn a lot of the uh, way in which we've been socialized in possibly negative ways, whether that is, you know, the way things are traditionally gendered or, uh, you know, things having to do with, as a white person, our whiteness um, and all of these other things that impact the way we relate together 
uh, socially as human beings. Yeah, it really goes back to that fear of others, fear of being corrupted, fear of sending mixed messages, fear of being unwanted, fear of, I mean, a million different fears of relational experiences that would lead to loss. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how I know some people, of course, who will say, well, I don't say I love you to most people because it's really complicated. And I respect that wholeheartedly. And that's when I will say, well, can I tell you that I love you? Because I seriously like fall for people left and right. My husband laughs at me all the time. He's like, do you have more people? And I'm like, yeah, I do. They're people are incredible. You and I mean, me both, Mandy. I know, dude. Yeah. I I studied anthropology in college as one of my um minors because I'm so obsessed with the way that culture works and learning about the way people relate to each other and how they build their societies. And that's one of those things that as I've come out of really recognizing these weird lines we draw in church world in Western culture. And I've just gotten to the point where I'm like, I'm going to make people uncomfortable unintentionally. I already know that. I, I know that I do anyway, but I know that if I'm honest about, wow, this person is so magical. I just want to like be near them all the time. That is not a bad characteristic. That's not, a, that's okay. That's actually a really beautiful thing that says this person regulates my nervous system in a way that I feel safe around them. And that's the purpose of relationship, not so that we can turn around and procreate or, or turn a community into a very peaceful, idyllic neighborhood because we all follow the same set of guidelines. No, we're actually creating a better environment because the atmosphere around us has attuned with the people we're with. Attunement is so undervalued socially. And I think because, I mean, I'm sure you can relate to this too, but I just think the church has given us such a um, stumbling block when it comes to that. We, to your point, feminine presenting people are expected to do a certain thing in order to show up and that's it. And so yeah. when you have someone saying, but what about attunement? It's not even about deep romantic love. It's about attunement. It's about feeling seen and seeing and being settled and feeling really safe. And, and I think that that's really, I don't know, that's why defining the relationship in every friendship you get that goes beyond an acquaintanceship is really valuable. And that too takes, it's a rhythm you have to get into that you have to learn and practice with people who are willing to say, oh, I wouldn't say it like that necessarily, but thank you for bringing it up. And yes, let's talk about it. So yeah. I think that's a great skill. I think it's in the same way, if I'm, if I'm thinking about it, the same way that I'm just now learning to be curious about myself in new ways yep. is a way that I have been curious about other people for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is one of the most like productive things we can do in social relationships mm -hmm. is to be curious and to ask questions. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, we were talking about split attraction model and romantic attraction and sexual attraction and aesthetic attraction and all these different things. And, uh, they said to me, they were like, I feel romantic about trees. Like, mm. like I feel romantic <laughs> about like flowers. Like, like, I feel like I have a, and I was like, tell me that's wild. Tell me more about that. Right. Yeah. And just like, I don't think I, it, had I not asked questions and been curious and both of us engaging with curiosity together, like you say something like, love you brought up you know saying i love you you say something like love or you say something like romance and we think that we're talking about the same thing but very often we are maybe talking about very different experiences mm -hmm. uh and even the way that you talked about feelings and emotions the way that you gave language to that as i was listening i was like oh yeah like that's that is different mm -hmm. uh and in until we start unpacking some of that, uh, we're we're missing out on opportunities mm -hmm. to be curious about each other. Yeah, relationally. Yeah, and I think that that's the that's the whole purpose of this is how do we show up compassionately for where we're at and curious about where we're heading, both with ourselves and with others. And if it, to put a fine point on it, just to like wrap this up, like that's the whole purpose of grief work too. Is you are always becoming, you are in process until the day you stop breathing. 
And who knows after that, even if there's more. So I'm not the one to answer that. So if I can frame my life in the way I approach loss, love, relationships, everything with that sense of wonder and, and reverence to a degree, then the things that seem terrifying and devastating and overwhelming to the point of death are, uh, they lose their teeth, you know? It just, it softens a lot. So I love Portland, I loved this conversation. I love everything about it. And I'm so grateful that you made space to be with me today. Everybody that's listening, you need to go subscribe to the thereafter podcast. You can hear Cortland and Meg. They're great. Meg was on the show. Ooh, maybe like episode 10, 13. You should go back and listen to her episode too. Um, And a little shout out for our buddy. That'll be fun. Yeah, I believe it is still in the link tree. We have links to like different podcasts that Megan and I have done uh, on all of the thereafter socials. So if you go into one of our thereafter socials or go to thereafterpod.com, it takes you to our link tree and you'll find a link to that that interview that Megan did uh, on this podcast. Well, Cortland, I hope you have a fabulous time introverting and puzzling and processing because yeah. you are you're really wonderful. And I hope you know that. Thank you. You are wonderful as well. And uh, I will. Absolutely. I've done, I think, eight puzzles this year. So I am, yeah, I'm loving every moment of it. (laughs) You have some Abraham Piper puzzles yet? I do not have a blue kazoo puzzle, but I am, I've got several of his puzzles on, in in my eye. Okay. So uh, I will at some point. Thank you for listening to episode 103 of Restorative Grief. Cortland's approach to relationships with a lens of curiosity, compassion, and communication is so underrated. Learning how to DTR, define the relationship with friendships, is crucial. It allows for clarity and understanding, not to mention is a form of positive loss aversion for that relationship down the road. No one wants to exist in relationships full of regret and anxiety, so I hope you can take something from the relational modeling Cortland offered us with his story. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to thank you for showing up and investing in this grief community and in yourself. Your very presence as a listener helps others find what they need when they are also grieving. Learn more about the offerings uh, from Restorative Grief Coaching at mandykpart.com where you can become a patron, read transcripts and other essays from the show, and connect with me if you're interested in working together or just have questions. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a shiny five-star review. They're my favorites. And consider sharing this episode with someone you have a trusted attunement with because there's no time like the present to start practicing. And as always, one last thing before we go please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.